Shape Moda designs women's trousers to suit everybody's shape to get the perfect fit. Just imagine that as soon as you wear a pair of trousers, they feel like the best piece of clothing ever. Dress for your body shape with Shape Moda and make a huge change in your life now. Go to shapemoda.com and find out which body shape you have. Shape Moda gives you the perfect fit. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan and delighted to talk to you again. This week, my guest is the Northern Ireland politician, Naomi Long. In the wake of the Assembly elections last month, I wrote about how, yes, Michelle O'Neill's name will be woven through any modern history of Northern Ireland, but it is Naomi Long's achievement as leader of the Alliance Party, which is the greater of the two. You can argue that out among yourselves. Naomi caused her first major upset in 2010 when she deprived DUP leader and First Minister Peter Robinson of the Westminster seat he had held for 30 years. Since then, she has led Alliance to become the third largest party in Northern Ireland and she's done it as a centrist, as a non-aligned party in a polarised state. Naomi is the only active politician to have served in every elected position, local councillor, MLA, MP, MEP and Lord Mayor of Belfast. And she's done it despite suggestions that being a centrist party, quote, standing in the middle of the road is a bad thing. Naomi, you're very welcome to the Women's Podcast. Thank you. Naomi, you come from a fascinating background. You're a centrist, which is one of the worst insults you can level at somebody in politics nowadays. But you also come from a from a very orange background, which is I find very interesting. And you were reared mostly by your mother because your father died early. Can yeah. you just give us a bit about your background and tell us how all this came about and how it has shaped you? Sure. Um, well, I suppose in some ways I had a very traditional East Belfast upbringing. I grew up literally in the shadow of Samson and Goliath in Harland and Wolf, and just off the kind of lower part of the Newton Arch Road in what would be seen as kind of very unionist, um, strong unionist territory. My parents were slightly older when they had me. Well, I say slightly older when they had me. They're a lot younger than I am now, let's put it that way. So they weren't that old, but uh, my mum was 40. Yeah, my mum was 40 when she had me. Um, My dad was 50. So um, I was a kind of a surprise because they just got married and along I came nine months later and I don't think they were expecting to have children, but they had me um, and clearly decided that was enough. So I was an only child. And so from my point of view, it was a very traditional upbringing. My mum had to leave work in the 1970s. You couldn't work if you were married and had children. So you had to give up your job um, in 1970. The law has changed a lot since then. So my mum left work. She worked in the Belfast Rope Works and she um, was a trainer for um, new staff coming in. So she left her job. Um, my dad was a sheet metal worker um, in Harlan and Wolf and he had worked there with his father, um, his brother. Um, and it was very much the kind of traditional route straight from school. I grew up in the same streets where my parents grew up. Um, that went to the same primary school went to the same church. So we we kind of, that was our little patch um, where, where we grew up. And as I say, my dad passed away when I was um, just about 10 or 11. I just sat my 11 plus. I knew I'd passed, but I was waiting to hear which school I was going to get into. My dad passed away in the March. And so my mommy kind of raised me single-handed. Um, my family wasn't particularly political at all. I think they tried to shield me from a lot of the politics that were going on, but Growing up in the 1970s in Belfast, you couldn't really be that shielded from what was going on around you. Politics was everywhere you looked, um, on gable walls and flagpoles and, and everywhere else. But my parents, I suppose, were, well, my my dad would have been quite strongly unionist. My mum didn't really have very strong political opinions at all. Um, but my dad would have been quite unionist in his views. He was a member of the Orange Order. He was master of his lodge for a while. 12th left from our front door um, his lodge went off to meet up with the rest of the district um, and uh, yeah so I was very kind of used to that he was in the black preceptory the royal black preceptory as well and that was kind of my upbringing 
And I suppose for me, I, I grew up in a very kind of traditional um, working class unionist family. Growing up, I wasn't really interested in politics. Um, so it wasn't something that I wanted to be involved in. I found it tedious, to be honest. Um, it just seemed like people constantly bickering on television. So I have some sympathy for onlookers now when I'm one of those people bickering on television. But it just didn't seem to go anywhere and it didn't seem to really do anything to change people's lives very much. Certainly not where I grew up. Just go back a little bit there, because the other thing about your upbringing was very staunchly religious. And, yes. and, and you remain so. Yes. Well, I mean, I wouldn't describe it as staunchly religious. I mean, my mother was a was a committed Christian. Um, and my father was a Christian. We went to the local church. I sang in the choir. My mum taught Sunday school. Um, and I was very heavily involved and have a personal faith of my own. I suppose from our perspective, um, it was very much part of our family. and Our faith is very strong as a family um, and had always been kind of part and parcel of um, what we did. My my cousins and so on were all involved with the church as well. So I would go to the church choir on a Sunday morning. My mum would be there. Her sister was in the choir. My godmother, who was my cousin, was in the choir. So it was very much a family affair um, when we went to St. Christopher's Parish Church um, just down there in Inner East Belfast. Um, and I think both that and my dad, Diane, when I was young, probably have influenced my approach to politics because I think... I think when you when you have a parent who dies at a young age, you tend to take on more responsibility. Um, and I suppose you grow up pretty quickly. I was already doing a lot of growing up. The transition between primary school and secondary school is a kind of coming of age moment, I, I think, for most pupils and, and for most children. But for me, it was more than that. I was I was no longer daddy's wee girl. I was I was going to have to kind of step up and help out around the house more and I took on a lot of the responsibilities, I suppose, that he would traditionally have been responsible for. So I did the DIY. I, you know, did the fixing the tops when the washers needed changed um, and the wallpapering and laying carpet tiles and all that kind of stuff. And I suppose I gave it a go. I, I was always interested in how things worked. Um, and this is my kind of chance to experiment a little bit. And my mum was willing to let me do it because she didn't have a lot of alternatives. And I was willing to have a go because she let me. Um, so, yeah, I was that, I suppose, kind of led me into engineering, which is where I ended up actually in terms of my studies. But also, I think that kind of faith background for me, it was always about my fundamental belief, first of all, that that people can change because I I ultimately that, that that's the story of faith is that we're here to love God and to love each other, but also that people can change. And for me, I find the the bitterness um, and the hatred that just infected every corner of our society, something that was really hard to live with. It didn't feel right to me that there was so much animosity. And that became very obvious to me when I went to university, because that was my first experience of, I suppose, integrated education, because that didn't exist when I started school. Um, there was just nothing there. And so most of my experiences had been around people who were pretty much like me, grew up in very similar households with very similar views. When I went to Queen's, I was certainly exposed, suddenly exposed to people from all parts of these islands and further afield, people with kind of strongly Republican backgrounds, people with actually much stronger loyalist and unionist backgrounds than I personally would have had, because as I say, my mum was pretty apolitical. And so all of that kind of element, the orangeism and everything else kind of faded out when my dad passed away. So I had been kind of raised in a, a fairly, not a political household, but not as not a, as political household in my teens. Um, and I suppose just the challenge for me was looking around, seeing, yes, those differences, those superficial differences. But I was just really conscious that we had so much more in common um, than than divided us. And yet when I looked at student politics, it just seemed to be following exactly the same patterns as the kind of adult politics of the time. So when I would have been at Queen's, it would have been people like Arlene Foster and Peter Weir and so on, who were, you know, in the debates in, in the student union and all of those things. And I just thought it was grim. Um, it was just not for me at all. So I chose a different path. I ended up being on the Joint Student Staff Consultative Committee and was 
laughingly by staff referred to as the um, shop steward of my year because I went along to those meetings with long lists of grievances, everything from the quality of the sausage rolls to the poor standard of lectures. And I would give them what for about how we were being treated as, as undergraduates. But also I would kept tell them how to fix it um, because I always had opinions on that too. Um, and they used to joke and say that I was the shop steward. But uh, I used to get things done for the class, which I quite enjoyed. That's important, Naomi, you, yeah. because we haven't talked about the fact that you did go into engineering, that that, yeah. that out of, was, was that out of your DIY <laughs> career? A little bit, a yeah. little bit. Um, there were a few things, I suppose, that took me into engineering. First of all, I mean, I love maths and science, so I wanted to do something in that space. I was one of those really annoying kids who I was good at English and I was good at the at arts and things. So I was good at, at, at languages and so on and probably could have gone down that route and, and studied law. And I considered that as an option. But I was also kind of good at maths and science and, and all of those things. And in the end, I thought, yeah, I want to do something scientific. That's that's kind of what I really enjoy the most. So I decided to explore and I suppose one of the things was that I always had a curiosity about my father and what his job was. And I think when my dad passed away, I was still only 11. So I knew he worked in the shipyard. The shipyard was kind of all around us, but I'd never actually been in the shipyard and I'd never seen what happened there. So I decided when I got my first chance to do work experience that I would go to the shipyard and I went to an all girls school. So when they asked us where we wanted to do work experience, I said, I would like to go to the shipyard. <laughs> and they kind of looked at me and said, OK, where do you a drawing office or? And I said, no, I want to go to the apprentices workshop and I want to learn what the apprentices learn when they go to be workers in the shipyard. So the teacher was undaunted and said, OK, we can sort this phoned Harlan and Wolf, who were more than happy. And myself and another girl, Julianne, went down to um, Harlan and Wolf. We spent a week there. It was fantastic. We were arc welding. We were kitted out in, in, in boiler suits, steel toe cap boots, hard hats. We were arc welding. We were soldering. We, we were making sheet metal. We were planing, cutting. It was amazing. Um, and they just taught us how to use all the equipment and the machinery and gave us a real good insight. And then at the end of the week, they took us up um, Goliath and we got our certificate to say we had been up the, the biggest crane in Belfast. One of those so, huge cranes. And for me, it was incredible because those were like, those were the skyline I grew up under um, at school. So we had a fantastic week and both of us went on to study engineering. So I think that was at least part of it. Naomi, were you the only two women there or were there others? We were such a peculiarity that the Belfast newsletter sent a photographer to Harland and Wolf to photograph these two 16-year-old students kitted out in their steel toe cap boots and their boiler suits and everything else um, because we were such a curiosity. And people would come from all over the shipyard, as you know, it's a massive site, just to like look at these two head cases who had decided that they wanted <laughs> to be in the apprentices workshop instead of stuck in an office somewhere. Um, but we had a ball and we went back to school next week. We had made, um, you know, we had made battery testers from scratch, created the metal casing for it. And we'd made, uh, we'd made square rules and also we just made loads of stuff while we were there. Um, and we came back with all this stuff. And that kind of inspired me because I like outputs. I like to see delivery and I get frustrated with stuff that doesn't lead anywhere. So for me, it was just a fantastic week because I had something to show for it at the end and I felt I'd, I'd achieved something. So I decided I would do engineering. Didn't know which kind. Considered um, aeronautical because obviously Horn the Wolf and the link. But in the end, when I kind of considered all the options, I decided to do civil engineering. Um, and I suppose... It didn't seem that weird to me to be studying civil engineering at Queen's um, initially when I applied and, and so on. And I was accepted onto the um, master's in engineering degree, which is like a four year um, course um, for about the top 16 students or so. Um, but when I went to Queen's, I was in a class of 120 and I think there were 16 girls. And having gone from an all-girls school in East Belfast to this completely different environment was, you know, it was just unbelievable. Was it intimidating, um, Naomi? How, how did that feel? 
yeah, it wasn't intimidating. I, I don't know why it should have been probably, but it just didn't cross my mind that I, I shouldn't be there. Um, I think the advantage of being raised by strong women and educated by strong women is that I grew up under the illusion that I could do whatever I wanted. And so I I'd, I hadn't realized at 18 that life doesn't work that way for most people. Um, so, you know, my teachers never said, you can't do that. Women don't do those things because they were all kind of trailblazers and encouraged the girls in school to go off and, you know, do engineering, study. One of our former pupils had become one of the first pilots in the RAF when they were only starting to let women fly planes and so on. And, you know, all that kind of stuff was it was part of what, what the school was about, was about saying just don't let anything kind of stand in your way. But my mum and her sisters and so on had always kind of gathered in our house because that was where my mum had grown up and sort of family hub. And so I was just used to these really strong women who seemed to be in charge. And I also weirdly, I suppose, grew up during the time of Margaret Thatcher as prime minister. So the idea of women running things, well, I didn't always agree with what they did. It didn't seem peculiar that they were in charge of things. So when I went to Queen's, although it was kind of a bit of a shock to see that we were such a minority there, I didn't feel like it didn't belong. And I didn't really have a chip on my shoulder about being one of the few women there. I'd earned my place and I kind of felt I didn't have anything to prove. So I, you know, I was probably quite competitive though um, with the guys um, <laughs> when I got started um, because I just, I suppose like, like a lot of women, I wanted to let them know that I was just as capable of doing all these things as they were. Um, and uh, I had a fantastic four years at Queens and graduated top of my year in 1994. So I had a, a fantastic time at Queens and I just, I loved engineering. Um, and I worked as an engineer for about 10 years before I went into politics. Now, let's, let's go, go back a bit here, because one of the fascinating things I read was that at some point when you were a little one, this idea of politics was put into your head by a woman called Miss Adair, a primary school oh, teacher. Oh, yes. Yes, my primary school teacher. Yeah, it was one of those things. Um, kids scribbling on the blackboard in school and they'd written you know, paramilitary something, UVF or UDA or whatever. It's the, the usual. Yeah, it was usual in 1970s Belfast. It probably <laughs> wasn't anywhere else. And my my primary five teacher, who was a wonderful woman, both a teacher and also an actor, and in fact appeared in Dairy Girls. Um, she was She was the sister who died whilst supervising people when they were on detention. That was my Miss Adair, who I love dearly. Um, anyhow, she she was in school and she had said they shouldn't be writing this. She said, don't write this on the board. These are bad people, which was quite a risky thing to say in a classroom where some of the families may have had connections. But these are bad people and you shouldn't be writing that on the board and you shouldn't be involved with these people. And she went on and then kids were saying, oh, and who do you support, Miss? Who do you support? And she said, I support the Alliance Party. And that was the first time I had ever really heard of the Alliance Party. And you were what, about 10 then? Oh, no, no, no. I would have been about eight. At eight, yes. five. Okay. So about eight. But you were probably Seven or 10. You are yeah. probably way ahead yeah. of the class at that stage. And so I thought, this is fascinating, you see. So um, I went home at lunchtime because um, I lived just across the road from school. And of course, I started to tell my mum and dad um, about this and I said oh Mr. Dar told me I uh, told our class that we shouldn't be writing these things on the board and my dad said no you shouldn't that's very bad I hope you weren't doing it and all the rest and then I said and she said she supports the alliance party so my dad just kind of gave a wry laugh and he said you tell Mr. Dar she'll need to watch out if you stand in the middle of the road too long you get run over and I thought this was very funny. So I went back and told Miss Sidor. I don't think my dad had anticipated <laughs> I would actually tell her that. Uh, but I did. And she said, and you tell your dad that much better to be in the middle of the road than in the gutter. And I said, well, I will let him know. So I went home and told him. And he said, well, touche. She won that, she won that debate. But um, she was fantastic. And she was the first person, I suppose, who 
had mentioned the Alliance Mm. Party to me and it wasn't for a long time after that I suppose it was actually when I was a student at Queen's where I had a particular difficulty with um, my student grant and I know students now when they hear me talking about grants would say well you're how lucky are you that you didn't need to take loans to go to university you actually got paid to go but I had problems with my student grant because by then my mum was retired and I was living at home Um, And things were quite tough. And so I had applied for an uplift in my grant and they said I wasn't entitled. And it it was quite the saga. And I decided I would write to a politician. So I wrote to Peter Robinson, who was my MP, and I asked if he could help. And I never heard anything back. Wow. And I was (laughs) I was complaining. This happens. I mean, I'm not judging him because I now know how easy it is to lose correspondence and all. It happens. But anyway, I was complaining one night when I was sitting in choir practice and said oh I wrote to my MP and nothing happened and the lady who was sitting opposite me in the choir Maureen McConnell said I work for John Alderdice who's the local councillor for Alliance for your area why don't you give me the details and I'll see if John can help and I said well yeah okay I don't mind if he wants to try but I said just ignore him like they've ignored me and I gave them all the details and sure enough within a week it was sorted And that was the first time in my life that I thought, oh, okay, politics can actually be about getting things done (laughs) rather than just arguing and whatever. It was a small thing and it was it wasn't going to affect a lot of people. It was just going to affect me, but it made a difference. And that was kind of the first positive experience, I suppose, of politics that I'd had and, you know, in in 20 years in Northern Ireland. Um, And. It was really when I graduated then from university and um, I was still living at home. I was canvassed in an election um, and the gentleman who came to the door um, asked me if I consider voting alliance. And I said, actually, I would because Queen's had opened my eyes quite a lot to the kind of changes that I wanted to see in society. And when I graduated from university, I I suppose like a lot of other people was thinking, will I stay in Northern Ireland or will I go away and make a life elsewhere? And it was 1994. So the Good Friday Agreement was not even in, not even being thought of. But the first ceasefires were just kind of taken off at that point. And it was the first time in my life when there hadn't been violence other than for temporary times of Christmas. And it felt like there was just the possibility of hope. Um, of some kind of change and I thought I want to be here and be part of it and so I decided I would stay Michael and I decided we'd put down roots here Um, but we didn't really know how we would be part of making any change happen or what our contribution would be and so when this gentleman arrived at my door and canvassed me for the Alliance Party and talked to me about what the party was about about bringing people together about trying to work for the best interests of of people without obsessing about the union or United Ireland, it just resonated with me. And I said, look, I would like actually to vote um, Alliance, but I would like to join and get involved. Um, And I don't think that's what he was expecting because I dare say he had his fair share of doors slammed in his face that night's canvas because it was a a staunchly unionist um, area that they canvassed, but I joined. Michael also joined at the same time, though we didn't know we joined. So I had to tell him, I said, I've done something a bit mad. And he said, oh, so have I, you go first. And I said, I've joined the Alliance Party. And he went, so have I, I was canvassed. I said, so was I. So we ended up independently joining the party at the same time in the same election. Um, And the rest is kind of history. Well, you were kind of a reluctant politician at the same time. I mean, you... Oh, very much so. You kind of, you kind of when you went forward, you were sort of... It, it, was, it was on the basis that you wouldn't win, really, wasn't it? Definitely. Um, I mean, if I had honestly thought I would get elected to Belfast City Council, I would not have run. <laughs> um, but David Alderdice, John's younger brother, who was then a councillor in Belfast City Council, so this was fast forward to 2001. So I'd been in the party since 1994, 95. It was now 2001, Good Friday Agreement had happened and I had been working behind the scenes and supporting elections and all that, but very much behind the scenes um, and working on policy and things like that. And it was really in that council election. So it was a difficult election 
we had supported for the first time Sinn Féin to be Deputy Lord Mayor of Belfast. To put it in context, in 1997, um, Alliance took the balance of power in Belfast. So up until then, there was a unionist majority. And up until then, only unionists had ever been Lord Mayor of the city or Deputy Lord Mayor. And the only exception to that was David Cook, who was Alliance. And the reason David Cook got to be Lord Mayor was because the unionists were outside deciding which of them would get it that year. And Alliance, there were 13 Alliance councillors and they realised the meeting was court. So they voted for David and David was elected Lord Mayor of Belfast in the absence of the unionist councillors. Oh my goodness. And David became Lord Mayor of Belfast and he was the first and only non-unionist to hold the post in the history of the city. And it took from that election in the 1970s right through until 1997, when we then took the balance of power for us to have our first nationalist Lord Mayor, who was Alban McGuinness. And that was as a result of Alliance um, negotiating a deal between the parties. Um, and then into after the Good Friday Agreement by 2002, we had supported, 2001, 2000, we had supported um, Sinn Féin for Deputy Lord Mayor of Belfast. And it did not go down well in certain quarters. And the party was expecting to have a very difficult election. And we did. So we went from having six councillors in Belfast City Council to having three. And the expectation was um, that the, I wouldn't get elected because I was going to be running actually against a sitting councillor who had left the party over the decision and was running as an independent. But I won um, and I was elected to Belfast City Council as one of the three Alliance councillors. And a year later, um, well, I suppose that year we had to decide who we were going to support for Lord Mayor. Sinn Féin were making a pitch that it was their turn and it was right and fair that they should get a chance. And whilst I had a lot of sympathy with that position, I also was very conscious that they were making promises about how they would deal with sensitive issues like dealing with the Battle of the Somme commemoration, dealing with Remembrance Day, all of the kind of ceremonial things that the Lord Mayor has to do. And I recognise that for Republicans, that's an incredibly sensitive and difficult issue. But equally for unionists in the city, it's a very important thing. And so how you manage that in a way that is respectful, whilst not expecting somebody to compromise who they are is really important. And we had reassurances from Sinn Féin about how they would handle it. And I remember saying to them at the time that I would feel a lot more confident if I thought they kept their promises, but they had made promises around things like decommissioning that had never happened. And at that stage was still up in the air. And I said, you know, you make promises you don't keep. And that makes me nervous because you're asking me to support you, not knowing how you'll conduct yourself. And they weren't very happy, but in the end, I said, look, if we see a bit of progress on those other promises you've made over the next year, then I give you my word. I will support you next year, but I want to see progress first. I'm sure it wasn't because of that, but during that particular year, there was progress on decommissioning. And I had given my word and I stood by it. So um, in 2002, I supported Alex Maskey, who became the first um, Sinn Féin Lord Mayor um, of Belfast. And I got my first death threat as a result. That's what I, I, I and I'm, we're going to come to that because I'm very conscious of that, Naomi, that that was it's 20 years. I actually referred to it recently myself because I noticed that it's a, <laughs> a very odd kind of anniversary for you. Mm. But in the meantime, one of the things that, that when you mentioned Peter Robinson not replying to your letter as a young student, um, it has always struck me because I remember that seismic event in 2010 when you defeated Peter Robinson, uh, who had been a sitting MP for 30 years, and you won his seat. Yeah. Which was an extraordinary achievement, obviously. I mean, I, 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 what, what, did you feel that that was, that that was game-changing for you and for Alliance? Absolutely. And I think it was game-changing for the DUP as well, because I think for the first time they didn't seem invincible in their, in their heartland. And East Belfast was definitely um, his heartland. Um, I think it was the first point where he looked as though he was no longer invincible as a politician. I think up until then, people thought that he was unassailable. He had, there was never the suggestion of um, dissent within the ranks in the DUP. If Peter Robinson 
said it, everybody agreed with it. Um, and for the first time, he looked human um, because perhaps he wasn't invincible. Um, and I think that, you know, you can see the the kind of the, the road to his end kind of starting around 2010 when that happened. I think suddenly he no longer seemed invincible. It was also a very important election for Alliance because not only was it the first time we'd been elected to Westminster, but it was a crucial seat for us because when Peter Robinson won that seat back um, in in 1979, he very narrowly beat um, Sir Oliver Napier, um, who was then the, the leader of the Alliance Party. And it was a narrow victory. But obviously, once he had won the seat, he, he then commanded it for 30 years. Um, so you can imagine that um, Ollie was just absolutely thrilled to finally see Alliance take that seat. Just it was a personal victory for him um, that he was just delighted um, to see us having won the seat um, and being able to do that. So, yeah, I mean, it was seismic because I think everybody just assumed that East Belfast would always be DUP. And I think maybe more widely in politics, it was a it was a timely reminder to all of us that none of us should ever take our constituencies or our constituents for granted because, um, you know, I think as politicians, you do that at your peril. This podcast is brought to you by ShapeModa.com. Log on today to find your perfect fit. Naomi, two things meanwhile were going on. One you just referred to, which was your first death threat in 2002. And the other is your health. I mean, one of the most most touching and and powerful podcasts I've heard in the women's podcast here and elsewhere was about endometriosis uh, because it's people are basically unaware of it. I mean, there's some awareness been raised of it now, but you really have suffered terribly from endometriosis through all this time, I presume. Yeah, yeah. Um, Basically, since I was kind of 14, um, 15, I assumed that the experiences I was having every month were normal, that this kind of agony that I went through, um, these very protracted periods, very heavy periods were just normal um, because people don't talk about these things. There's a taboo and it's one of the things, one of the reasons I spoke out um, was because I think we need to start talking about these things. We need to start saying that actually this kind of pain and discomfort is not normal. It's not just part of being a woman. It's a sign that something is wrong. Um, And I, I suffered with that throughout my adult life. Um, So, you know, I would function normally um, during the day and then at weekends I would kind of crash because the pain that you were kind of fighting all week to just keep going just kind of overtook. And it kind of robs you of your your free time and your downtime because you want to still function and do your job and all of those other things. But the pain is severe. And it, it really came to head for me. I was being treated for IBS. They were doing tests about whether I was allergic to things and so on. But over years, I'd been misdiagnosed numerous times. And eventually, um, I collapsed um, on holiday. And I was taken to hospital. And when I was referred back, I was sent to a general medical specialist who then referred me for a whole series of tests. They worked their way around every part of my system to work out what was going on. And it turned out that I had two massive ovarian cysts. I mean, one of them was the size of a grapefruit. Um, The other was about the size of an orange. Um, And I also had this really invasive endometriosis um, and really quite aggressive. And basically the, the pain I had been experiencing, the collapse that I'd experienced um, was down to rupturing of the cysts. And the nausea that I experienced was because the blood that had ruptured had nowhere to go. And so it was just really, really tough um, and really kind of painful um, to get through. And it took me until I was 39, 40 to get a proper diagnosis um, of of what the cause of it all was, Um, which, you know, looking back just seems mad um, because when you talk about the symptoms of ovarian cancer, I mean, they're almost the same. And yet no one at any stage had suggested checking about ovarian cancer, despite the fact of a family history of breast cancer, which we know has linkages. No one had checked that out. I just think women's medicine is an area that is just really underfunded, 
underprioritized. I genuinely believe that if men were in that kind of pain for that length of time, it would be taken really seriously. But women see this as just women's issues and it's 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 hidden away, it's not talked about. And it's it, for for a lot of women, it, it just they never know until they're much older. Usually people find out when they try to start a family and that doesn't happen. Um, sometimes they'll find out if they have a really good GP who picks up on it. But for a lot of women, they go through life not realizing. And I realized that at 40, I had surgery um, that helped massively. Um, but the particular kind of endometriosis I had was very aggressive. And so in the end, I had a full hysterectomy um, in 2017. Um, because it was just going to keep coming back and coming back. And my mum, I don't think her menopause started until she was about 55. And I thought, I have a lot of years potentially left, given my genetics of going through this, and I'm done with it now. I'm not going to have children. So this is equipment I no longer need. And if it's causing me this amount of trouble, I think it's time. So I had an elective hysterectomy um, uh, in 2017, which is a big decision, big decision to make. but. Um, it was the right decision for me and definitely it has helped me hugely. Um, but by that stage, um, it wasn't just my um, ovaries and, and so on. It was my bile and all that kind of stuff that was that had endometrial tissue attached. So it was quite a big, um, a big surgery to go through to remove all of that and leave everything else intact. So it was it was challenging, um, but I'm glad it's behind me. Um, but I do. I do try to champion this issue and talk about it for women because after I talked publicly about my surgery, my cousin contacted me to say that she also had endometriosis. And there is some thought that this might be a a genetic, there was a genetic element to this. And yet as two young women who had grown up, had spent holidays together, you know, had kind of shared a lot of time, we had no idea that the other was going through the same thing because we just didn't talk about that stuff. And I think we need to be much, much more open about menstruation, uh, menstrual health, sexual health, reproductive health, just so that women can talk about things that aren't quite right and know what's right and what's not right um, and feel confident to insist on, you know, being seen by a specialist. Because I think too often we just put it down to women's troubles, as my mother's generation would have called it, and you don't talk about it anymore. And I think it's really, in terms of quality of life for people, it is a massive impact. But Naomi, what strikes me from what you're saying and from what I've heard other people saying, if it gets in the way of your fertility um, and actually prevents you having children, it's much more than a woman's trouble. You know, yep. it's, it's so far-reaching. I am still aghast at what I discovered only quite recently about endometriosis. I mean, are you angry about this, that it wasn't that it wasn't located earlier? No, no, because I didn't really have any kind of burning desire to have a family. So Michael and I were quite content. You know, we we have our dogs and we're, we're, we've been quite happy with that. And, you know, it wasn't, I know that there are people who have this kind of burning instinct. They, they need a family. They wouldn't feel complete without it. I'm quite content with, with my work and and all of the other things I have going on in my life. So for me, I suppose I don't feel cheated in that I could have pursued that. I could have pursued IVF or whatever. And I chose not to go down that route because it just wasn't something for me. But for a lot of women, they don't find out until it's either late or too late. And that I think is a real risk because for those for whom it would be life-changing, it is a real issue. But it's also the fact that, you know, our fertility isn't the only thing that matters. Our health, our well-being, our ability to enjoy our lives and function and all of those other things also matter. And these things tend only to be picked up at the point where you say, right, I, I want to get pregnant and I can't. So now somebody will take this seriously. But if you go and say, I am in excruciating pain, you know, for 10 days a month, um, you know, I am, I'm fainting because of heavy bleeding and all the rest of it. And people are just like, well, you know, that's being a woman. And it's not. Um, it really isn't. There are things that can be done. And when I spoke to the, when I finally got to see a really good um, gynecologist, 
you know, he was quite angry on my behalf that nobody had referred me through earlier because, you know, he was saying there's so much we can do. But so it's just so poorly recognized. And yet one in 10 women have endometriosis. So this is not a rare occurrence. Some women won't know they have it. They won't suffer any pain. They might only find out if they go to have family. Other women, their fertility aren't affected. And actually having children can help your endometriosis because when your ovaries stop functioning during that period, it actually rests your system. And sometimes that endometrial tissue that's in the wrong place will die off during that period. Um, Other women, you know, it will be really aggressive. They'll be in a lot of pain. So it varies from woman to woman. And sometimes women who are in a lot of pain don't seem to have as much of the that, that tissue growth, yet it's really painful because of where it is. So it's really poorly understood. And I, I do think that, you know, understanding why it happens, how it happens and how to better treat it, I think is something that I really, I think it's so important because I also think we need young women to kind of know not just what's normal for them, but also like it was normal for me, but it wasn't normal. So you need people will always say what's normal for you, but actually you do need to know what's normal. And if you're, you know, if you're if you can't function a few days a month because you're you don't want to go over the door those few days a month and you're making excuses and hoping that you don't have to, you know, then there's something not right. Um, and I think, you know, that's something that we, we need to have more kind of candid and open conversations with young women and, you know, give them the confidence to push for for proper investigation and treatment um, because it can be treated yeah. um, and it should be. Now, Naomi, you've also, I mean, you're, you're, you're in a trade that requires endless patience, endless stamina, um, endless tolerance. I mean, even no matter what part of the world you're working in, but especially where you are and because of the position you occupy at the centre. And what I can't really get over is how you with that with that illness affecting you in that way you've also suffered from skin cancer you've also I think had long COVID yeah am I right about all this yes and how are you now I have good days and bad days it's a lot less intrusive than it was um but I mean I had COVID but I had COVID back when it wasn't trendy so I was back in March 2020 when people weren't really sure um what was going to be the outcome I wasn't hospitalized though I did have to go to hospital I was on a drip and and so on I had inflated temperature I had no cough so they weren't even sure it was COVID but when they did a scan of my lungs they saw adhesions at the bottom of my lungs where my lungs were sort of sticking together as COVID would do um and they allowed me to go home on the basis that if I got worse, I would go straight back to the hospital. So I had a lot of chest pain, breathing difficulties, but I didn't want to stay in the hospital because I just wanted to get home. And I was in bed for about three weeks. Um, and it then took me another, you know, six months to kind of really fully get back to, to normal. So I was kind of able to work from home during lockdown and manage the symptoms. It became more challenging the more I tried to do because I would find I would tire very quickly some mornings I'll get up and I can do lots of things. Other mornings I get up and I feel like there's a weight on me. Um, I'll, you know, find mornings that I, sometimes I struggle with sleep. Other times my breathing's fine. Sometimes I'll have a bad cough. Other times I don't. I get dizzy spells. All classic kind of long COVID symptoms. But yeah, it's... um. Yeah, it, it's just I, I manage um, and I work around it and uh, I enjoy my work, which makes it a lot easier. I mean, if I if my work was a chore, then it would be difficult. But, you know, you need a lot of energy for politics and you need a lot of drive. And, you know, it, it at times it, it kind of does drain you slightly um, having to kind of juggle that as well as everything else. But which brings yeah, us back, had, Naomi, uh, to to um, to the death threats yeah. and the abuse. And I, I, you, you've been dealing with all of this. Just tell us, for people who aren't familiar with it, tell us a little bit about the 20 years of, of yeah. putting up with this abuse. Well, I suppose, as I say, the first one was when we voted for Alex Maskey um, for Lord Mayor of Belfast and I got a death threat. I was told that um, if I stayed in my home, I would be shot. Um, the police arrived at my door, gave me a leaflet to tell me, you know, what to happen if you're a victim of threats. Um, and kind of basic security stuff and so I kind of was sitting there not sure what to do um and 
at that stage, I suppose I could have walked away from politics. I'd only been a councillor for a year. I wasn't that well known. Um, and I could have just decided this is not for me. And Michael and I sat at the time my mum was ill. She had breast cancer and she was staying with us. Um, and I sat talking to Michael that night. And I said, you know, I could walk away. But that's what they want. And I'm quite a stubborn person by nature. Um, I think you need to be in politics and uh, willing to be a bit of a terrier. And I thought, why would I give people what they want? If you give in to bullies, it just gives them encouragement. But I also thought there's an element of this where it's kind of the proof that I need that we're needed. So, you know, Northern Ireland, clearly I'd got involved in politics because of the divisions, because of the troubles, because of all of that hatred and the hope that we could do something different, the change was possible. And suddenly I was facing death threats and I thought, well, surely this is the evidence if ever it was needed that that kind of, that message that we have, that that desire to change Northern Ireland is still needed. The Good Friday Agreement hasn't done it yet. You know, it's a process that we need to engage in. And so we both decided there and then that, that we weren't going to walk away. Michael was also a councillor, but in Castle Ray. And so we decided we wouldn't, we wouldn't give up. Um, and periodically avid threats, um, some more serious than others. There's the usual, you'll never be re-elected in these Belfast ones and the bullying and the intimidation references about my my weight, my appearance, you know, you name it. Um, it's open season, you know, some fairly hateful stuff. Um, you know, people who will say horrendous things about just even things sort of not just horrible things like how, how my dad would be would be ashamed of me and all this kind of stuff knowing you know that my dad passed away when I was young and yet his family who are all quite unionists would say quite the contrary would be absolutely proud of everything you've achieved but it's that thing of you know just constant abuse whether it's on social media whether it's emails some people even take the trouble to sit down and write you nasty letters which always kind of amazes me I could never imagine you know being so angry and full of hate that I would want to sit down and pen essentially a poison pen letter to somebody it just I just what an awful way to spend your time and what an awful kind of thing to have and habit in your mind and um, that kind of anger and fury um but some of them have been more serious um you know during the flags protests around Belfast City Council, um, our offices were under attack. There were attempts to um, burn the office down. Um, a young police officer was almost burned alive in a police car. Um, in one incident, again, I was threatened. I got bullets in the post. Um, and it was just a kind of consistent um I suppose quite a consistent barrage of abuse and it's odd because you mentioned earlier about me having um, skin cancer and it all happened about the same time so while all of that was going on um, I'd noticed that I had a mole on my wrist it's it's really the ginger Irish person's disease if ever there is one um, you know I I need factor duffel coat to go out in the sun or I just crisp up. I mean, I'm as white and pale as you can be. But as soon as I'm in the sun at all, I'm sunburned. I just need to look out the window at it and it happens. Um, and I'm always very careful not to sit out in the sun. But I think just where my watch, the reflection of my watch strap been reflecting on my wrist and it had been reflecting on a mole that had been there for a long time. And I'd noticed that it was getting itchy and it looked a bit strange and um I I had it looked at and it was a it was a skin cancer melanoma. And that happened in the kind of March, April time um of 2013, which was just in the middle of the flags protests. And it does kind of put death threats in some kind of perspective when you find out that you have cancer. Um and all of the noise about flags and, and threats and other things just seem to pale into insignificance when you have a real battle to fight, you know. Um, so I had the skin cancer, um, the, the lesion removed, um, and I actually didn't talk about this until a long time afterwards because I knew if I mentioned it at the time, there would be those on social media and other places who would say I was just fishing for sympathy. 
And so I didn't even tell my family and friends um, that I had skin cancer. There was only a handful of us who knew. Um, and I went through the kind of five-year checks that you go through and, and all of that. Um, and thankfully, um, have been given the all clear as much as she can ever be with these things. Um, and it was at that point, really, when I was no longer elected, when I was no longer a Westminster MP and I was out of politics for about a year. And I spoke out then about skin cancer because it was a it's something quite close to my heart. I lost a friend um, to skin to secondary uh, malignant melanoma. So it's something that, you know, I think we need to be more concerned about as a society because we we do tend on the first sign of a sunny day to run out in the sunshine and forget that our skin is really not um, necessarily ready to cope with it. Um, and we take some awful risks um, as a result. And I suppose I, I thought I would speak out about that. Um, but I had to then go and tell my family and friends, you know, that the the, this, the small surgery I'd had on my wrist, because I had my hand reflected back in a, in a cast for a period um, to try to avoid a large scar. Um, and that's it. what happened, I thought it was just small surgery on my wrist and I didn't get into it. And I had to then go and tell people that actually it was it was it was cancer. So, um, yeah, I, I had to, to kind of tell them that. But I mean, you know, I was very fortunate, caught it early and I'm still here. So, Naomi, tell me something. So that was all this has all been happening to you. All of those things. This is what <laughs> astonishes me. Um, and we're also dealing with misogyny. Um, which I, I'm old enough to remember Monica McWilliams and yeah. the Moo chants. Oh, of course. Uh, and I wonder quite often how women in Northern Ireland politics have survived it. And the only word I can think of is resilience. It is just a most extraordinary survival thing that you do up there. Yeah. Um, you, you need to hide like a rhinoceros for politics here. You really do. Um, you, you do. I mean, the things that are said to you, about you, um, you know, that you would never get the kind of misogyny that Monica and others experienced that kind of mooing when they get up to speak and all that kind of stuff. But you get it in more subtle ways. You still get the, you know, the presumption that women speaking have had enough time now piped down and, and we have got something to say. Um, you never hear men criticised for talking too much, but you always hear about women. You get the whole, you know, oh, you sound like a school marm, but you never hear that said about a man who's assertive. You know, it's all of those little things that are telling you women shouldn't hold strong opinions and articulate them robustly. And I just don't buy that, I'm afraid. I, I have every bit as much right to express my opinions. I have a mandate to do it. Um, and I just get on with it. Um but there are a lot of women, and I'm very conscious of this, particularly at the moment, who see the abuse that I get on social media, the trolling, the abuse, the, all the stuff. And it puts them off getting involved in politics. I mean, we had women who said they would love to have run for the assembly and they would have been great, but they didn't want to expose their family, their partner, you know, themselves to the kind of abuse and trolling that, that I get. I think I'm probably... Um, a bit of a lightning conductor for some of that but for them they just said it no it was something they couldn't deal with and that made me reconsider because up until that point I had very rarely blocked anybody on Twitter um I had always been reasonably open to engaging with people and I hadn't really used the block and I suddenly thought I'm starting now to expose other people to this and if I was in the school situation or meeting young people and they said to me, what's your advice on social media? I would tell them all the usual block report, you know, don't put up with trolls. Don't let them get in your head. Don't let them stay on your phone. You know, their opinions don't matter. Just get rid of them. They're toxic, whatever. And yet I don't follow my own advice, as is so often the case. And I know that, for example, people started to send me direct messages to say, we wanted to ask you this question but we didn't want to post it on Twitter in public in case people would start to troll us. And I know this is, there's no point to engagement in social media if the people who actually want to engage constructively can't have a conversation with me because my account is being followed by trolls. So I now do block people who are abusive or people who try to impugn my integrity. I don't mind if they disagree with me, but people who insist that I'm a liar or, you know, whatever, those people I block because I just think, 
there's there's very little as a politician that you have but you know I will defend my integrity because it matters to me um people may not always like what I say and that's okay but I tell the truth and as far as any of us can from our own perspective tell the truth but I'm honest and my dealings with people and I, I just think that that's a kind of line when people cross it that, that I draw the line at but yeah I'm I'm, I'm more I would block people more now than I used to um, but Twitter is a bit like the Wild West. And some of what I get, <clears throat> you know, whilst it's, it's rough, is nothing compared to what some of my younger female colleagues get, you know, from all parties. I mean, we saw in the last election, you know, deep fake porn videos being made and circulated purporting to contain images of candidates, not them. Um, but circulated on their social media, circulated in WhatsApp groups, you know, abuse, hateful abuse. Abuse, actually, for one of our councillors who was recently co-opted to council to replace an MLA, she was there less than three days and somebody sent her a tirade of abuse because she doesn't accept direct message friend requests as a rule because she doesn't want people she doesn't know direct message in her. And this guy just sent her this tirade of abuse. Some of it's laughable. I mean, you know, I I was on RTE during the election campaign. It was actually during the count. So we'd had a very exhausting but very successful election count. And I was on RTE. Um, and I must, I, I probably did look a bit of a mess. Um, it's not really the first thing I'm thinking about, to be honest. In the election count, I'm thinking about whether my colleagues are getting elected or not. You know, it's... A, but I'd had a pretty rough election because although we had a very good election in terms of results, my father-in-law passed away and I'd been to his funeral on election day. So it had been a, a tough campaign to try to keep the campaign going, spend time with him as he was he, he died of cancer, spend time with the family and then deal with, with all of that. And some gentleman afterwards decided to send me an email to say that I clearly hadn't seen a hairstylist for quite some time and that I should put more effort into my presentation um, on television if I expect people to vote for me. So I wrote back and said, look, um, first of all, I don't expect people to vote for me, but I was on television because they did in large numbers, which I think is great. I wasn't just hoping they would. They have done. And I said, I want to thank you for your email because I said in the last few weeks, I have fought an election campaign. I've been running the Department of Justice in Northern Ireland. Um, I have been with my father-in-law as he passed away and attending his funeral. Genuinely thought that nothing mattered less to me than my hair. But you've reminded me that your opinion of it does. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I just unbelievable sense of entitlement to just send you messages. <laughs> One of my colleagues, um, Trisha Olin, very glamorous young woman um, and very intelligent, Dr. Patricia Olin, I yes. should say, um, very intelligent, very articulate young woman, got a message from somebody, supposed supporter, saying how great it was to see her elected and making this breakthrough, the first woman elected in North Antrim constituency, the first Alliance Assembly member in that constituency and how one, but that he did think her profile picture um, that she should lay off the lip gloss and the pouting because he had thought that she looked a bit like, it, it, he thought initially thought it was another makeup tutorial um, oh and that she might want to have a more appropriate image in a professional environment and she was like <laughs> she sent it to me and I she was like my nails are not long enough my my eyelashes are not long enough my lip gloss is not shiny enough I, she was like I am not good and I was like you be you but it's that idea that particularly men seem to have where they just tell you how you should look how you should present yourself what's acceptable and what is and um, you become kind of immune to it to a degree um, most of the time um, and then other times it's just yeah, it's just, so just, ridiculous yeah, just most of the time um, yeah. and I think I think that's probably a, a, a good way to end this conversation Naomi which is you reply to the guy about your hair which is the one 
I want to go with in my head. And I advise everybody <laughs> to reel back this podcast and listen to that reply again, because we all need a dose of that. We need to put that up on our walls and remember it every day of our lives. Naomi Long, I am so grateful to you for your time. Oh, thank you so much. Thank and you. The very best of luck with all your endeavours. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks again to Naomi Long for speaking to the Women's Podcast. This episode is produced by Roisin Ingle, Jennifer Ryan, Suzanne Brennan and Aideen Finnegan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or on social at IT Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. I hope you love that. I did. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>